Hello. Hello. Welcome back to A Drunk History of Middle Earth. I'm Chris. I'm joined by my wife, Rebecca. Hello. And if you haven't heard us before, we talk about Tolkien in a very easy to understand way, a very relaxed way to bring the law to you. So, Becca is my wife. She didn't know that much about Lord of the Rings when we first started it and anything basically to do with Tolkien's Legendarium. And episode by episode, we've we've taught you quite a lot, right? Yep. And I've learned, I've certainly learned a fuckload. Right. What we're talking about today is an interesting one. So this is something I've thought about before because I got really excited when I was reading The Nature of Middle-Earth because there's, there's references to like grain and harvest and stuff like that. And then there's a, there's a lad who follows us on Instagram who I talk to every now and then. He totally loves, well, I say love, it's a bit of a fucking strong word. He enjoys the podcast and that's Tony. And Tony asked me, you know, what what do you think about uh, the economies of Middle-Earth and like, and or like money and stuff like that? And, and I gave like an answer off the top of my head and I was like, oh, well, you know, the dwarves refer to it and blah, 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 blah. But then I thought this actually is something that we could really dive into. And yeah, yeah, you, you really can dive into this. Money, money, money. Well, yeah, so I started with that, which was like, what is the money in Middle-Earth? Because it's never really expanded upon. But then I thought, okay, well, there's some societies where it's not that easy. So money is simply a medium of exchange for goods and services. That's all money is for us. Like Money in itself, for humans, money in, in our real world, money in its sense doesn't have its own value. It has a value that is like designed and like adhered to and agreed upon but it is simply a medium for exchange so pre that it was like bartering so it'd be like three chickens is worth one goat but then you know you might get harder and harder to do that so when we we have money where it was right well a chicken is worth one and a goat is worth three yeah so you know then i've got you yeah blah 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 blah. once upon a time i want to be a mortgage advisor so i still remember doing all the training for it I was going to say, like, I'm so glad that you didn't because that explanation wasn't very enthusiastic. So I'm assuming you're not actually as enthusiastic about financial things as you once were. No, I've, I've just renewed our mortgage for another two years and it was fucking heartbreaking. <laughs> so no, I'm not that enthusiastic. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Fuck me, right. <laughs> we'll bring it round. <laughs> this, is, this is more goth of an episode than the, than the vampire and werewolves episodes i think it's because we're just exhausted i'm i'm fine i'm all right so we're going to talk about the economy the economies because it's multiple economies of middle earth and is it economies due to different races different races and just kind of like different ways of life okay so like technically hobbits are kind of like human but they have a, a kind of different economy to like say rohan yeah. For example, or like the the men of Dale and Arab. But anyway, we'll, we'll we'll get into it. It's um it's more like different economies coexisting within Middle Earth. I'm going to acknowledge the sources that I've used in this because it was a couple of really good ones that come from articles that were written. Some of them were written quite a long time ago, and that is the the Economy of Gondor by Ruth Lacon Lacon fuck knows and Kenneth <laughs> and Coinage in Middle Earth, who comes from a guy called Kenneth Fraser. So thank you. Kenneth and Roof. <laughs> Roof. But they were from, it's from like the 90s, so I, I I don't know. I hope they're still alive, but they, they might have just lost interest in talking. They're never going to listen to this. You never know. <laughs> I wonder who the most famous person to listen to this podcast is. <laughs> I don't know, because quite like the, la- the last episode in particular where we talked about Feanor with Alec, that brought in a lot of new listeners. Yeah, it depends what you clarify as famous as well, because that guy who plays that really goddamn... Amazing music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's like, also called Alex, yeah, yeah. Some people may really fangirl on mm. him. 
Well, Chris is on Spotify and I listen to yeah. some of his songs. And he's really good. Yeah, he is. So, so a couple of musicians. He could be. Yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, the rules for the day. We're going to visit as many distinct groups as we can. However, I'm mainly concerned with the third age of Middle Earth. I will make passing references to the first and second and there will be some talking points about the first and second age, but I'm mainly concerned with the third age. So unless I'm explicitly stating it's the first or second, assume it's the third age. Okay, let's start with The Hobbits. Now, interestingly enough, right we we've kind of reached critical mass of episodes because i was reading about the hobbits as like uh, hobbits as, <laughs> it's my golem moment i was reading about the hobbits economy and i was like hey this seems quite familiar and i was like is this just stuff i've read and it's kind of like by osmosis that like because there's a lot of that stuff now that i do where it's been so we've we've had this podcast for a year now like this is our second year of the podcast and there's a lot of things like i, I can kind of instinctually tell if something's right or wrong about talking like whether it's supported in the text because you've read so much uh, Yeah, but content. then, uh, so I can, off the top of my head, I can say, oh, yeah, I think that's right. And then I'll go and find it, or I'll say, no, I'm pretty sure that's not that. And then I'll go and find what it actually is. So when I was reading about The Hobbits, and, and I was looking at their economy, I was like, oh, wow, this seems really familiar. Why? We did a whole fucking episode on The Hobbits and, yeah. and their origins, yeah. Yeah, and, I remember and, the and, bit about, yeah, and the bit about trading as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah so anyway... If you want a more in-depth look at The Hobbits, go back and listen to our episode about them where I, I went over the origins. Uh, so there's two episodes we've done about The Hobbits, actually. There's The Scouring of the Shire in World War One. It's not that one. It's the origins of Hobbits, like where they come from. But a lot of what we're going to talk about now, like this, the, the, about the economy and the money and that, it actually mainly comes from The Hobbit, the book. And I think that's because it's so tonally different from Lord of the Rings and it was published not before he had any conception of this massive world, but before The Hobbit was really, really, really tied into his mythologies of the elves and stuff. So we'll talk about the, the money and then after that we're going to talk about the men of Dale and Darwinian and stuff which kind of ties quite closely into the Hobbits. So the, the Hobbit economy, I'm going to be very upfront about this, it was simple capitalism. It was pretty simple capitalism. Like England pre-industrial revolution kind of capitalism where you have, a, it's like an agrarian society, right? So, and, and I've mentioned this before, where you'd have the landowners and then yeah. you'd have the tenant farmers so Bilbo's a landowner, and people would pay rent to him, right? Like Bilbo and Frodo, they're like the aristocracy. Lords. Yeah, they, they're, they're like the laws, like the aristocracy, right? And people would pay rent and, and own the and on the land that they owned, and they would farm that land. They'd give some of it to Bilbo, the the guy that you know that might. And that's the the key thing here is how they were paid. A lot of it would be paid. Parsnips. Would, but yeah, it would be paid paid in goods, but. The hobbits do have money, so I think some of it would be in coinage as well. But when we say an agrarian society, we mean that it was mainly kind of like agricultural, but then you had the next step up, which was the traders, the the craftsmen, right? So an example is you had the landowners who owned the land, the farmers who worked the land, and let's say they kept sheep on the land. Then when the farmers shear the sheep, they would sell the wool in the town, like in the towns in the Shire, to the, the textiles or like to the, to the what the fuck are they called? The craftsmen. Yeah, what the ones are called who work with wool? Weavers? It's like weavers, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so they'd sell that to them, who'd then make the clothes or, or make the cloth and sell it to the tailor. And then the tailor would sell the clothes to, to the landowner, to, to Bilbo, for his waist jackets, for example. There's descriptions in The Hobbit of waistcoats that Bilbo has, and, you know, that he mentions in Lord of the Rings about the hobbits having waistcoats and blah, blah, blah. And that was because Tolkien liked waistcoats. But do you understand that simple kind of capitalism? Yeah. It's that someone owns the land, someone lives off the land, someone works it, sells it on someone does something with it and then you it's just a life keep, cycle yeah and then you keep the money 
kind of flowing. And then we also covered in our Hobbit episode about gift giving within the Hobbit Society. Yeah. Now, in that episode, I do discuss whether they're a gift economy or a gift society. Now, a gift economy is quite different because it is there's a lot more pressure to it in a gift economy like a, an example of a gift economy would be early Scandinavian society where people would like um, yarls and, and stuff like that would give out arm rings and that was a gift economy yeah what the hobbits have instead is a ritualized gift giving tradition so instead it'd just be like socially expected when you go to someone's house you take a bottle of wine exactly or yeah. flowers yeah to be polite yeah, yeah, uh, but the, with the hobbits, it's much more rigid. And then you go into the concept of like the twelve mile cousins about who you give your presents to and who you don't. And you have to take Malbec if it's <laughs> yeah. a certain person. Yeah, like when when you give gi- <laughs> when you give gifts, when you don't give gifts. Yeah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to know more about that. But their money, though, this is new because I didn't talk about that. But their money, they do use money. They use gold and silver coins, and there are cut cut there's cut content cut parts of the hobbit that never made it to print that refer to brass and tin coins as well uh, so uh, an example of money being used is from the book the hobbit where bilbo is talking uh, where it's talking about bilbo's parents and, and it says not that belladonna took ever had any adventures after she became mrs bungo baggins bungo that was Bilbo's father, built the most luxurious hobbit hole for her and partly with her money that was to be found either under the hill or over the hill, blah, blah, blah. And then the next passage is Bilbo when he's talking to Gandalf and the dwarfs. He says, All the same, I should like it all plain and clear, said he obstinately, putting on his business manner, usually reserved for people who tried to borrow money off him. So we know that the hobbits use money. Yeah. Then in Lord of the Rings, there is two more references regarding hobbits and money. The first one is when they're at Bree. I was going to say, is that when they're at the Prance and Pony? Um, it's, no, it's when they're in Brie and Frodo has to buy a new pony. Ah. And he buys it for 12 silver pennies, which is apparently three times its value. So they had market prices that yeah. the Hobbits were aware of. And whoever sold them the pony in Brie, I can't remember who, they sold, who, who, who it was, but they sold it over the odds. And Frodo knew it was over the odds, so they had a, a kind of stable economy and then i've mentioned about the brass and tin not being made and at one point the currency in the the shire was going to be called the ducat which is actually a real life coin that was used in the middle ages particularly around uh, like italy which that didn't make the final cut and the, the economy's never uh, sorry the coins are never mentioned and the last one is that gandalf when they're at the council of elrond when he finds out that strider traveled with the hobbits he says that that piece of news would have been worth a gold coin, but never mention what the gold coin's called. So do you think the hobbits forged those coins themselves? Oh, that's such a because good... Because I was curious yeah. as to how crafty the hobbits were. So like what skills and that they actually possessed. Because obviously we don't hear a lot about them forging swords and weaponry. So do they have the capabilities to forge money? I am so glad you asked that because I couldn't find an answer i i also thought that do they mint their own coins and then i thought i went a bit like crazy out there and i was like right nobody knew the shire really existed like outside of like eriador and the kingdom of arnor which is the north kingdom to gondor south kingdom right the kingdom of arnor used to use the shire as like fertile farmland so could it just be that they have such a closed economy or there is such a small leakage that 
they are using coins that were minted in the, the early third age and i thought oh could it be that and then i thought well might they have their own mints and, and i just don't know if anybody can tell me please do uh, I, I will say that from the breadth of research i've had to do for this episode this is this has been a challenging episode to research because the the scarceness of the material but at the same time because there's so many different areas i've covered it still took me a long time yeah it's not like, oh, here's one point, move on. It's kind of like you've got to chase down the footnotes and you've got to chase everything down. So if, if anyone knows of references to mints within the Shire, like minting your own coins, not like fucking breath mints. So we know we tr- the trade were Bree, so they must at least have a common currency there. Or there is enough hobbits in Bree that they will accept hobbit currency. Do you know, like everywhere in the UK accepts Scottish banknotes as well as still like uh, English banknotes? Yeah. Like it's legal tender. Could it be like that? Could it be that Brie has its own currency, but they will always accept Hobbit money because there is enough hob- enough Hobbits moving because Hobbits live in Brie. That there is enough movement between Shire, the Shire, and and like Brie. You can easy get rid of it. Well, no, it's, it, no, it's just that it's still legal tender. Yeah, like it's still legal tender, so like they, they, it's still gonna move. You say that, but every time I've ever paid with a Scottish note, it's as if I've come from the planet Mars. I've literally never, ever had an issue with it. Have you not? Never. Oh, I have. Never. Another thing the Shire does is export pipeweed. I bet they do. Now, this is... I say export with, like, some quotes because with one notable exception, it stays fairly local. And again, to, like, Bree and places like that, right, where where big folk live. But there's, a, there's another one we'll get into. So we know that they trade in pipeweed and that the Hobbits were the first ones to start smoking it and... and Blah blah blah. They all there is a, a per, there is a hobbit by the name of Pimple who Pimple is a nickname who sells pipeweed to Saruman and he's been doing it for a couple of years and then holier than thou Saruman exactly and that's when they uh, Merry and Pippin find a stash. I think it's Longbottom Leaf. They find it at Isengard. Yeah, uh, I think it's like the chapter's called Flotsam and Jetsam, and it's just in the wreckage of Isengard. So we know that Saruman at least buys it from them, and he'd been buying it from Pimple. And this was quite an interesting, going back to our scouring of the Shire episode, because Pimple is the nickname of Lothal Sackville Baggins, and this is the same hobbit that Grima Wormtongue might very well have eaten. Oh. Joe and he's ordered to like Saruman said he killed him in his sleep he stabbed him but then he also it like Saruman yeah. makes a reference to him being eaten so when everyone went away on the journeys Lothal began buying lots of property in the South Shire and exporting pipeweed and then after it slowly increased where he started to just sell more and more goods to people outside of the Shire which tells us that it didn't happen too much in that it was a notable event like they were saying, he started to sell it to people from the south without, you know, like, like the the inference being that it's unusual to sell to people outside of the Shire on that scale. Yeah. So you know, we can see we can see there what what you know what type of economy we're dealing with, and the people of the south he was selling to were mainly the thugs and bandits under the order of Saruman. So that's that's hobbits. Is there anything you wanted to to pick up on before we moved on with them? No, I just want to know about where they're getting these coins from. Yeah, probably. Minting their own coins because they have things like mills and stuff like that, right? So that they do. I don't believe it. They do do stuff like that, but and then I thought out there maybe there's just like a there was a giant horde of coins that's just passed around, and that's how they maintain a stable economy with like no inflation or anything like that. Where it's just and because you got the ritualized gift giving, because I think Bilbo gives away pennies at his party as well, like a couple of pennies. So because you go to kids, so because you've got ritualized gift giving, the money's always kind of in circulation. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. And then obviously you've got the treasure that Bilbo brings back from his adventure. 
Yeah, so they like shiny things. That's interesting then, because the coins he brought back, there might be silver and gold coins, but they wouldn't have like the same markings as the one he did. Interesting though. So we're going to cover Rohan and Gondor as separate ones, but I've got this I've got this section which I've just called Other Humans, including Dale and Darwinian. And I've got another passage from The Hobbit which says, Then the Master hesitated and looked from one to the other. This is when Thorin and the elves are arguing in Lake Town. The elven king was very powerful in these parts, and the Master wished for no enmity with him, nor did he think much of old songs, giving his mind to trade and tolls, to cargoes and gold, to which habit he owed his position. So straight away we see that the men of Lake Town, or like formerly of Dale, whatever, very well aware of trade, right? And what I've discovered in this, researching this, is this this like whole little hidden economy in the north of Middle-earth, where you've got Darwinian in the far east, you've got Mirkwood with the elves, You've got the Iron Hills, you've got Erebor, and you've got Lake Town and then Dale. And they're all like trading with each other quite freely. And it's quite detailed when you start to look into it, which I thought was like fucking fascinating. And then when the master, uh, in, in the Hobbit book, when the master is removed from his position, when people are shouting they want Bard to take over, someone shouts from the crowd that they had they have had enough of money counters. Reading between the lines, you know that there's going to be like treasuries or like taxes and that there's some form of accounting. Yeah, and there's going to be people that are debtors. Exactly, creditors and debtors, yeah. And then Darwinian, which I've just mentioned, is a special place because this is one of the notable places. Like, they have a core export, and their core export is wine. But a little bit about the place for anyone who's not familiar with it. Darwinian is, it's this place far to the east of Middle-earth, right? Very, very far to the east. and It's on the, the shores of the Sea of Rune. So the Rune is an area in Middle-earth. And in Sindarin, it just means east. So it's the far eastern part of Middle-earth, right? And it's got a gigantic lake, which is an inland sea called the Sea of Rune. And Darwinian is on the shores of this place. And Darwinian... Good irrigation. Yeah, is renowned for its wine. For all them grapes. Yeah. And it they make a very... In the Third Age, they make a very, very strong wine that Thranduil of Mirkwood loves. And that's the wine that his... They all get drunk on at the feast. And that, I think I found my people. <laughs> um, so another note about the Sea of Rune is that... Wait, do you remember when I was talking... We were talking about the Teleri and they were making the great journey... Yeah. ...towards Aman? This is where they stopped and really got to grips with how to use boats properly on the, this inland sea. Okay. And so it may have been popular Darwinian. We don't know anything about it, barring some very kind of sparse information. So we know that the barrels that the hobbits, uh, that, sorry, that Bilbo and the dwarves escaped in. They're not wine barrels. Are they, they are wine barrels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. They, they are, a lot of them are wine barrels and they are destined for Darwinian. And and this is this trade network I'm going I'm to talk about, right? Because the, this wine comes to Mirkwood, they drink it. They send the barrels back down the river to Lake Town, where either the barrels are filled up with goods like butter and apples is notably mentioned, and sent back up to Mirkwood, or people from Darwinian make their way to Lake Town, where they will collect their barrels, and they might also fill them with goods from Lake Town and then return to Darwinian with the barrels. And then the next time a shipment of wine is needed, they will send it back up the river as far as they can, and then once they've exhausted that, they take it by cart overland so yeah it's this whole whole trade network and darwinian it might have been populated by men which seems to be like the prevailing thought is that it was men but now i found something very nerdy and i found something very exciting 
<laughs> for me, and possibly for anyone else who... Is it homosexual? <sighs> Is that why it's exciting to you? No. no, no. <laughs> you threw me off. Because <laughs> straight away, I was like, I've already told Wine her. Wine and I've, men. <laughs> I've already told her, if, if, if we split up, I'm just going to shag a trans person, just see what it's like. Anyway, right. <laughs> It's, no, so it, what's interesting is that Darwinian might have been populated by men's, but they're men's, but there is also some speculation that it might have been populated by Avari or Nandor elves. And for anyone who's not aware, Avari is the elves who didn't ever want to go to Amanta. They didn't ever want to leave Middle Earth when the elves first went, and the Nandor are the ones who started the journey, but then for whatever reason turned back. And the way, the, the reason that this might be because it might be populated by Avari or Nandor elves is that Darwinian is a Sindarinized name, which means, um, what is it? It means like young land country. So like it's a, it's a Sindarin name. And even if it is a, a Manish town, it is a testament to just how far the Sindarin language is spread to be that far east. Yeah. But I also found this really fucking weird reference, right? That it, it's, it's probably one of the first times I've looked at something and I thought, like, Jolkin, why did you why did you feel the need to give detail about that? So there's this um, there's this magazine called Palmer El Lamberon, and this was issue number 17 I was looking at, right? And it's a journal of linguistic studies in which Tolkien wrote extensive like syntax backgrounds for the words and phrases in other languages of his that appear in Lord of the Rings and what have you. And there's one reference in this, in, in issue number 17, one reference to Darwinian, and he just, he says, what is it? He says, like, he says that, it, he talks about Darwinian, and he says it's a Sindarinized name, but then he says, oh, but the Avari and the Nandor didn't learn how to make wine until after the other elves. And I was just like, what, how is that fucking important? When, when is that ever going to be fucking relevant? Well, it's relevant now. But <laughs> <laughs> he knew. Yeah, I was like... He knew we would make, be making this podcast he episode. Just, he just made he made a point to say that the Avari and the Nandor elves didn't learn how to cultivate vines or vineyards until after the, the other elves who did go to, like, Beleriand and Aman, which I just thought was such a... It's the first time I've ever been researching something, and I just kind of sat back and I was like, what's the fucking point in knowing that? <laughs> it's just you've, a, just... you've just done that. Well, yeah, I know. Me, with most of the language, I'm like, right? Like, I, how... how? I, it was just... Sorry, it was just, it was just such a bizarrely specific thing. <laughs> fucking hell. Right, that, that's it, pretty much, for the, the Darwinian and what have you. So They're the, my favourite so far. Yeah, the heady wine, the strong wine that knocks elves to sleep. Let's talk about Gondor. The chief currency, so this is, we've got some actual information here. In Gondor, they do have a currency called the Kastar in uh, Westron, which is like the, the common language. So it's the Kastar. In Sindarin, the same coin was called a Mirian. And there's no real information about what this coin was made out of, but it wasn't silver. Because the smaller coins they used were silver. And they were called Tharni in Westron and Kanath in Sindarin. So, if I ever find reference to gold coins of Gondor being the bigger ones and the silver ones being the smaller, then maybe the Hobbits are using the same currency. Which would be very interesting, considering coins that would be recognised and minted for or in Gondor would then be missing to a country that they had no knowledge of. Is that why Hobbits have quite big pockets? Troller coins, yeah. You dick. <laughs> well, they're a different size to humans. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the footnote in Peoples of Middle-earth, where I got the, the name of the currency from, it mentions that Mirian is Noldorin, but then it, it seems to be... Mirian seems to be taken from the Sindarin word Mir, which means jewel, like M-I-R. Mm. So I'm a little bit unsure about where the Noldorin part of that comes from. But Gondor, how does it feed itself? Well, they seem to do a lot of farming. Now, this is an interesting part because watching the films like you have, you would never guess at this because in book five book five of lord of the rings it describes minas tirith as gandalf and pippin approach it and it's outside of minas tirith on the pelinor fields there is a fuckload of arable fertile land we don't see that oh, in it films. doesn't it doesn't no, look no, like that no no don't, don't see that in the films looks barren yeah it says for 10 leagues or more it ran from the mountain's feet and so back again encircling in its feet fence the fields of the pelinor fair and fertile townlands on the long slopes and terraces falling to the deep levels of the anduin the townlands were rich with wide tilth and many orchards and homesteads there were with ost and garner fold and byre and many rills rippling through the green from the highlands down to the Anduin. So very fertile farmland. That's how they feed themselves, right? And then the, the article by Ruth Lacon, Lacon in Malon 31, published in December 1994, a year I was one, I was nearly two <laughs> when that came. You weren't even born. I was nearly two when that came out. So she examined some of the possibilities of Gondor's economy, and she posits that, like the Roman Empire, the wealth of Gondor comes from the land, right? That makes sense. And they produce both food and raw materials, like fibre, leather, wool, horn, and timber. So, so far, not 100 miles away from the Shire, right? Then you move on to the industrial parts, which is a little bit different from the Shire because it's like, it's it's that use of the word industrial. Like, it's it's kind of explicitly there that industry is bad in the Shire. But then you've got, like, what she means by that is, like, tanners, blacksmiths, breweries, pottery making, blah, blah, blah. So, but I think the difference between, trade, like, artisans and industry is just the scale on what you're doing it. Yeah. And I, I think the scale for Gondor would have to be Whether a lot bigger. Whether you could sell it on Etsy or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then she says, like, so from that, naturally, from all of that, we see, like, primary materials being produced, then refined with, like, raw materials being produced, then refined by the industrial the artisans the traders whatever so naturally from that we see taxes being collected and then we work and it's way back up towards the king's treasury which would have to be a central function which is pay for those lovely halls of Minas Tirith so revenue collection and expenditure would be important to the whole effort in trade and she says that trade would be used mainly for obtaining goods that could not be produced locally and likewise selling things in excess locally that would be scarce elsewhere so being placed close to the Anduin River and the Bay of Belfalas their ability to transport goods would be excellent giving them further reach than just going overland because at its height Gondor's territory actually included the sea of rune which is very far to the north and east so it like and you think of it an empire like an empire would have to trade so think of all the different climates that so they'd be trading amongst the the whole like empire right wouldn't they the being close to the water would give them a much better transport network and it means that occasionally there'd be issues with like the corsairs of umbar like the pirates but depending on when we were talking about that'd be an issue because a lot of the time they had them under control and so broadly they'd be fine but it's a bit shaky bit i'm gonna speculate that i think that throughout at least the whole third age or the entirety of gondor i think there was just that one coin the castar i think like that that one currency because we don't have any other 
information to go on. So I think that like that would I don't think currency would change very much. Mm. Or hopefully it wouldn't. So yeah, like the, the whole on a reasonable economic scale, we could bit essentially say farm to table where you can sell anything that's left over or import anything so like the thing is like as they go like further south and further east they'd probably start doing shit like the the, the real world did it's like bring back spices and, and other stuff i was gonna say it sounds like the tea trade yeah yeah pretty much yeah so like they'd probably trade exotic stuff right like the the wine from darwinian that i'm that, still no on brainer. board with no brainer yeah. yeah with their culture i still think they're top yeah i think uh, so then they'd probably get horses from rohan right like stuff like that, and when we we talk about um, Mordor, we'll see about like trading horses and that. Uh, and that's I think that's pretty much how like as much as I can say about Gondor is that it seems to be a feudal kind of like big empire type system, or like a Roman Empire type system of taxes, expenditure, um, far like produce locally, export excess, pay your dues to the treasury. And that's used for like roads and stuff like that. That's as, as much as I can really say, I think. Right. So the most exciting people are not, I mean, not them. Boring. No. Let's stick to the wine people. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. You've still yet to convince me otherwise. <laughs> uh, so as a last note, naturally, if you're talking about Gondor, Numenor comes up as well. I could not find a fucking thing about Numenor and its economy. It was. <sighs> It's, it's all mixed up because we know the voyage to Middle-earth, and this is all my speculation, and there's a good chance that I might have missed something key here, but we know that they voyaged to Middle-earth, the Numenorians, they traded with the locals, and over time they became wealthy from doing this, right? And then first they visited as like benevolent people, then slowly over time they became essentially like tyrants and dictators coming from the sea, and that's how they grew their wealth. So my speculation is that first they came as mediators and healers with their advanced knowledge because they were like to people in Middle-earth as elves were to humans, like there was that much of a gap in advancement. So at first I think they came as like wise people, as healers, like mediate conflict, help you out of a jam, blah, 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 and people would give them gifts, and that's how they got it initially. But then as time went on... They stole them. I think these gifts became expected and then um, as they got more and more like corrupted and, and greedy greedy that it eventually would become taxes and that's something I'd want to look at more in an episode about Numenor as a whole but uh, that, that for me is my speculation that you would see that slow corruption of going from freely given and accepted gifts to expected taxes so then we've got Rohan the horse lords and what do we think they traded with Hmm. Probably something they had a lot of. Let's hope it's wine. Wind. They had <laughs> lots of wind. Chief output is wind power. No, it's horses. <laughs> and it's mentioned sparsely, though. Like, So the, the Rohirrim existed for about 500 years before the, the War of the Ring. Before that, they were the Northmen. And they were like shepherds, herdsmen... Blah, blah, blah. So, And there is very sparse references to farms and farming within Rohan. So I think they would still generally be a little bit of subsistence farming. Like you farm to live, but their main exports would be like their horses or stuff like that. And there's an excellent song called The Lament for the Rohirrim. And it was written by apparently a forgotten poet of Rohan. And he says... 
Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? So that's one of the only references is that like they they grew corn. We knew that we grew corn, but corns are very. It's like basic. Yeah. So food, yeah. So, so it's not. yeah. So it's not. It's not too super advanced. So it's probably just subsistence farming, and then sell horses if you need to, or just live off the land as much as you can and, and enjoy being the horse lords. They would have traded with Gondor though, like hundred percent, because they had friendship and what have you. And Mordor tried to buy horses off them, and when they refused, they were stu- they stole them. Right, so Sauron tried to trade with his economy, right? So, and I think that they didn't have as rich of an economy as Gondor, but I think they still had wealth, and I think this wealth comes from their horses, but also the horde of Scatha, which was the dragon, if you remember from our dragon episode, and this is the the one that the cheeky bastard got himself killed by the dwarves. Uh, so Scatha had a horde that the Rohirrim kept from the dwarves of the Ered Mithrin, which is the Grey Mountains, who thought it was rightfully theirs because, you know, it was Scatha's horde. And an ancestor of the Rohirrim called Fram, son of Frumgar, killed the dragon and then argued with the dwarf over the treasure. And he was killed by the dwarves after he sent them the teeth of the dragon and said, Jewels such as these you will not match in your treasuries, for they are hard to come by. <sighs> so yeah, they had wealth but there's little information on the trade. So maybe trading cool shit subsist. A lot of this, a lot of economies come back to like how are your people feeding themselves? And that never really seems to be a problem in like, it never really seems to be a problem in Tolkien's works. But if it's so important that these, so if it's such a big deal that these people are actually called the horse people. Yeah, it's probably probably horse breeding. They're like, yeah, and they're probably they're probably the the best of the best in training the best horses. They've got like a niche part of the market. So because you hear, you don't hear about anyone else trading horses. No, just ponies. So, but the like the ponies a bit shit, isn't it? Yeah, I think a lot of the economies boil down to not many of them can ride ponies. No, I think the economies tend to in in Tolkien's works they always tend to boil down to like. With apart from Gondor, which seems to have the, the most established one, it's and, and the Hobbit, which is kind of the most like circular capitalistic one. It's just more about like what can you what is the one thing you can trade what in? Of, what can you bring to the table that's yeah. different? Yeah, it's not much more it's not much more complex beyond like horse people. What do you think you could bring to the table in Tolkien's universe? Ooh, in Tolkien's universe. Certainly not Wood Whitlin. No. Ooh, wrestling. <laughs> I can wrestle. Okay. I think that might be it. Wrestle people. Be someone to wrestle against. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about you? Funeral care. <laughs> Mint, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, I'm not quite sure. I don't think I've got anything exciting to give. Funeral care might be actually a pretty fucking valid one, you know. Like... I could be, I could charge, like, staff of mine to care, like, after battles. You know how we do, we're talking about the clean-up effort Uh in wars. Like, who goes round all these piles of bodies? Mm. I would be the person. 
that would identify, do the burials. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, good one. All right, fair dues. The dwarves. Now, this was an interesting one. This was, I think, this is the most interesting part. Because, and I think, naturally, the dwarves just are tied up. They're, they're intrinsically tied in with trade on, like, a fundamental level for the character, uh, for the, the whole concept of the race. So, dwarves begin, uh, the, the economy that we're going to talk about begins in the Second Age, when the dwarves forged an alliance with the Northmen of Middle-earth, who would, some of whom would be the ancestors of the Rohirrim. And this is when the dwarves learned the speech of men. And it's written that this relationship that the dwarves had with the men of the North became the blueprint for their relationships with all humans going forward. So, the men, the, the humans, would provide the food in exchange for services, right? So, the humans were herdsmen, shepherds, land tillers, and then... They would also, and this is importantly, dwarves never tamed animals of their own and they never rode horses. Gimli is very unusual for riding a horse. Because of this, the humans would also act as scouts because at that time they were still in big danger of being attacked by orcs. In return for this food, they would be the builders, the miners, the road makers, and the crafters of all things requiring skill, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. This was ridiculous ridiculously tilted in the dwarves favor though because it meant that they didn't have to worry about food so they could 100% devote themselves to their crafts which allowed them to maintain and increase the gap in skills like do you know like uh, well no but in world war ii right germany was so effective because the whole country was mobilized into a military force the whole country became the war machine yeah every dwarf except for very rare occurrences, could devote themselves 100% to their craft. They didn't have to worry about that hunting. Mint. Didn't have to worry about hunting, farming, none of that. They was Just like, level up. Exactly. Like a sim. Yeah. When you but put that was, sim on, like... Yeah, and it, they became unparalleled crafters because of that. Yeah. And, well, they were already unparalleled before that because they've always had these kind of relationships, it seems. I've but, thought of my talent, by on, the way. Then. Go on. I think I would be the potion maker. I'd be the one who could um, cure a lot of things because I like foraging, don't I? Like, when yeah. I walk the dog, I like to pick berries and things and yeah. eat them. Yeah, and yeah. I can identify a lot of plants. So I think I'd be like a herbologist and I would be able to make crazy cures for people. <laughs> and I'm a good carer. Oh, no, yeah, really. Yeah. I've nursed a lot of, I mean, they're usually dogs, but... I'm like the nurse, aren't I, in the family. When people are ill or like our pets are ill, I'm always sent. See, I don't trust you because... The I first know thing- you don't get any sympathy, but no, you're no, my no. husband. No, no, the first thing you said was funeral care. Then you said, oh, I'll give people potions. You're just going to live off your own work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry the potion didn't work, but did I mention I also sell coffins? <laughs> Keep myself in business. <laughs> Right, so dwarves, if there was ever a real... So I said that they didn't like to do their own food and that, but if there was really, really hard times, then the dwarves had invented a plough that they designed that they could drag themselves to till the land. like so Because they they never tamed any animals, and humans did, so that's kind of what set humans mint. apart. 
but they hated this because they, they didn't want to be doing that. And uh, I mentioned some of the other skills, apart from being like a, mi- a miner and stuff like that. Some of the skills are mentioned in the Song of Durin, which you are very familiar with, which I'll read from. And this is hands down my joint first favourite poem of all time, the, the other one being The Raven by Alan Poe. But anyway, so in the Song of Durin, it's written, A king he was on carven throne in many pillared halls of stone with golden roof and silver floor and runes of power upon the door. The light of sun and star and moon in shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night, there shone forever fair and bright. Their hammer on the anvil smote, their chisel clove and graver wrought. Their forged was blade and bound was hilt, the delver mined, the mason built. Their beryl pearl and opal pale, and metal wrought like fisher's mail. Buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and shining spears were laid in hoard. So that kind of encapsulates Beautiful. the whole society in terms of what they were crafting. It's like this was their jam 100%. This was all the shit they were doing. It's better than my example I was going to provide. Yeah, and if, and if, anybody, <laughs> uh, if anybody did want to listen to a really good version of <laughs> the Song of Durin, have a go at the Clamavi de Profundis version. Uh, you can find it on YouTube and Spotify and that. It's fucking unbelievable. So this relationship, right, between the Northmen in the Second Age and the Dwarves culminated in a relationship that we are very familiar of, f- familiar with. It's the relationship, we see this in the Third Age, it's the men of Dale, or like Lake Town, and the dwarves of Erebor. So it was interrupted slightly by Smaug fucking things up, and then Thorin being a dick. But it then, you know, it, it got really back on track by the time of the War of the Ring to the point where King Brand and Dane Ironfoot like died together before the doors of Erebor. So that relationship, that whole relationship, came from this alliance, the trade alliance in, in the Second Age. Yeah. And then another thing is that in The Hobbit, the book, the dwarves are described as being calculating folk with a good idea of the value of money, which is mad because dwarves also dealt in money as well as goods and because they mention, again, in The Hobbit, that there was a time where the poorest dwarf always had money to spend and lend. That sounds like my dad. Yeah, and it said their references. So it's like, and there's also like references to interest yeah. and stuff like that. So we know that despite the fact that their economy seemed to be very much based on services for goods, right? That was that was like the one way. Is like that I'll provide the services, you provide the goods. They did have a, a quite an advanced idea of like loans and wealth accumulation and stuff like that, which is pretty fucking cool. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, right, and I think this is fascinating, and I thought it was funny, is that the dwarves and the hobbits are the only ones who seem to be aware of coffee. And it's, uh, oh, well, Because they've got to keep awake. Well, Gandalf as well. But when Bilbo serves, he serves like he's got a jug of coffee on the fire when the dwarves come to visit him for tea. So someone's got to grow that, right? And then this is a very weird turn for this show. Um, So I like to think that dwarves grew this because coffee can grow in the mountains and it grows better at higher altitudes essentially so in today's world a lot of the flavors we associate with good coffee come from coffee grown at high altitudes and it gives you better flavor 
and less pests and disease. <laughs> you went down such a fucking hole researching. You know I, was on, I was on the Cafe Nero website. Yeah, you're crackers, I, man. I said to you today, I was like, I need two hours to finish the script, right? No, you, I spent, you deep dive. I, I spent 15 minutes on the Cafe Nero website reading about how coffee grows at different elevations. I think you spent more time than that, Chris. I didn't, know. It's got a nice little chart. but So I like to think that the, the dwarves grew this up on the mountains and like nice temperatures and that that was one of the things they would export but i just can't believe that for a lord of the rings or a tolkien podcast i was on the fucking cafe nero website looking up coffee that's our new business venture <sighs> lotter coffee oh god oh there is people who do stuff like that though is there yeah, there's, uh, right, there's, there's. It's the, always been done, isn't it? Like every everything's the, been no, done the, now. No, there's a middle. There's like a Middle Earth tea range, but I don't know about a coffee one. But also, like last podcast on the left, they do their Spring Hill Jack coffee, don't they? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got their own coffee brand. But yeah, there's a um, there's a page on Instagram or like a shop or something where people do like Middle Earth. It, someone's doing like Middle Earth tea infusions, and I, that I, sounds funky. Yeah, it sounds I, cool. I, 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 no idea but yeah anything you can do there's middle earth candles and stuff like that as well like anything you can fucking merchandise someone's doing it yeah Yeah. it's it's mental there was someone the other day actually is um there's a creator called t we're talking and she'd signed a book deal and and it i i I didn't look too much into it because i saw i saw a post and it was like it's about how the lessons learned and allowing yourself being changed from something to do. But I think it's something to do with Catholicism because it's quite a Catholic kind of leaning thing. And the, the the publisher is called Ave Maria Books and I think that's something to do with Catholicism, isn't so it's it? it's Italian. <laughs> well, I know, but I don't think T were talking Italian. I think she's yeah. maybe American. Anyway, uh, fuck knows. Point being, everything to do with everything in Middle Earth has been done. Yeah. Even this podcast, there's a lot of talking podcasts, but I think... Our niche is breaking the stuff down in a way that I would want to explain to me. Yeah, like we're not uh, pompous or pretentious, which I think sometimes Tolkien can lead to pompous and pretentious, Mm -hmm. but being the person that you are and the child that you were, you you, like I think of you as a child as Matilda. (laughs) Like books were your family and Tolkien... And the books were your family <laughs> and the background you came from. Like, I think there's a lot to learn from Tolkien and I think making it approachable and accessible to people is the best the best thing. You shouldn't make it into a group of people who have all this knowledge and kind of take everything to the far end in the way that they sometimes do. Like, you, you know those people where they just use big words yeah. to kind of put people off? It should be accessible to everyone. It, it, that, and that is 100% is why I started this podcast and, and I came to you with the idea and I said, right, let's let's do this. And you were like, yeah, I'll do an episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll do one episode. Through osmosis, I've definitely learned a lot. And even when you're talking during recording, I'm like, oh, God, mm. that clicks. Oh, that's clicked into place. Well, I don't know if you ever hear me when we're having our book club discussions as well. Like, yes, I do. And I'm, I'm talking about that as well because I, I and that's a fine line between like this is what I want this podcast to be and this is what this podcast will always remain right I will explain things in the simplest way I can not because not because I, I don't think that people wouldn't understand it. otherwise that is 100% not the case it's that I want it to be fun 
Yeah. And, and fucking easy to learn because a lot of it is, is locked almost behind a lot of research you have to do. And there's so much content there that I just want to... I This is going to sound so fucking bizarre, right? Oh, I always think of it as I just want to bring these fantastic stories to as many people as I can in the easiest way for everybody to understand it. And I think even the people who you associate with, so quite a lot of the people that you speak to potentially don't have the the way that you have in terms of your attitude and your personality to bring it to other audiences. Do you, know, do you know what's interesting, right? So you know, for, like, so for anybody who doesn't understand, doesn't know, I'm an engineer by trade. I work in security, right? He's not a tinkerer. No, a big part of my role, uh, my job, is explaining technical things to people who could not and would could cannot and do not want to understand and do not give a single shit. So you've got to explain it in a way that everybody can understand who, 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 whatever call I'm on. Like everyone can understand this big, why this is an issue and why we need to fix this. And I think that has really lent itself to, to the podcast, to be honest, like, because it's not, you don't diminish the, the message by making it sure that everyone can understand it. But anyway, massive fucking tangent. If you're enjoying the podcast, great. If you don't, why are you still listening? It's like fucking an hour in. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> right. The last thing I want to mention about the dwarves. During the Second Age, there was a great cooperation between Eregion, which is... It was a country of elves that was founded in the Second Age, and it, it pushed right up against the doors of Durin, where you see in the film, like, the Watcher and the Water. Uh, do you know when, like, the, 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 the speak friend and enter and stuff? Yeah. Yeah? So that water wasn't always there. That water crept up because of, like, uh, changes and stuff like that, but... That used to be, those doors used to be open constantly to trade with the elves. And it was, the, the doors were built between Celebrimbor the elf, who also forged the, the, the three elven rings, and, well, the, the, the rings of power, essentially, and the dwarf Navi, who are the two greatest craftsmen of the Second Age. And what's really aggravating is there's one throwaway line that's just never expanded on, which said that, when the doors were open, there was unfettered trade between the dwarves of Moria and the elves of Eregion. What this trade is, we don't fucking know. But given that it's dwarves, I dare say it's probably just food for labour. Is yeah, that's the best guess I could give it. Oh, and that's it. That's it for dwarves. Is there anything else oh. you want to talk about? How did dwarves stack up right, to Darwinian? So- Darwinian? Darwinian? So I, I I think they're on par. Yeah. Um, and I also just want to add my little part. So when you were saying the evidence was that little lovely poem, and you read it out beautifully. Oh, the the, the song of Julian. And I yeah. said, "Oh well, my evidence wasn't as great." I was gonna say, "Hi ho, hi ho." It's off to work we go. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's my evidence. No, it's yeah, but I'm, it's I'm, still relevant. Yeah, exactly. I'm not. La- you're laughing at yourself. I'm not laughing at you. That's that is evidence. Like it's it's what dwarves mm. are known for that they're hard workers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so I I think my dad's a dwarf. Thinks he's poor. Has loads of savings. Is making loads of money. Never stops working. Never stops working. Loves working. Never cooks for himself. Never cooks for himself. Oh, shit, My dad yeah. is a dwarf. Yeah, dad's a dwarf. He hasn't got a beard. He's though. really crafty, like he a is. proper oh, good crafty. craftsman. Yeah, he is. 
Yeah. It's not bearded, though. We can't be perfect. Unless your mum's his beard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, we've only got a couple more. So, Mordor and Isengard. Uh, I included Isengard along with Mordor because Isengard essentially is a fiefdom of, of Mordor. And with the exception of pipeweed and possibly some other supplies, it functions exactly the same as Mordor. Uh, Mordor, which I'm going to talk about in a second, is it's all it is a particular type of economy. Uh, but what I find interesting is that Mordor, within itself, its own economy, has a certain type, but it is willing to engage in fair trade with other countries, seen by the fact that it tries to buy horses from Rohan. It tries to buy them until Rohan said no, and then orcs ran in and stole only the black horses and like the, the black foals and stuff like that. And so we know that Sauron, being a, a Maiar of Aule, would want he wants everything ordered to his will. So fair trade in an established pattern that kind of makes sense. I understand that. And I saw, but the the whole of Mordor is based on slaves, right? And I heard the phrase "slave based command economy," which means that, and someone likened it again to the Roman Empire. That the whole of Mordor's economy is based upon slave labor, which every single output is used to further the military. And that essentially is what Sauron is doing, is that everything in Mordor works towards building his might so that he could dominate the the rest of Middle-earth. And I don't know if you knew this, but there is an area of Mordor that's called the Sea of Nernin. Shockingly, I didn't. Oh, right, okay. I, I wasn't being. I, I, I wasn't honestly, being facetious. I wasn't being facetious. I was no, no, I just, totally wouldn't have known that. Right. Okay. So there's an area. Right. So Mordor is not just um, what you see in the films of like the the ash and the the barren stuff, right? I kind of just think of Mordor as like um, a big field. Right. No. I know that sounds bad, but like yeah, it's just yeah, a yeah, big I, barren I, area. Yeah, 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 it's not. No. So they've tunneled into. That is. Um, that, that's that one area we see, right, around uh, Orijuin. But there is an inland sea, two inland seas this episode. We've never fucking mentioned them before. There's two this episode. The inland sea of Nurnan, which is uh, a salt sea. Is that what, is that is what like, bursts its banks? No, no, it doesn't. Like, is that what the dam thing's holding? No, that's uh, the River Eisen, not Isengard. Oh, okay. So the inland sea of Nernin has massive fields around it, and these fields are very, very, very fertile farmland because of the volcanic ash from Orijuin. And these fields are all tended by slaves. And all of these slaves and all of these fields plant, harvest, till, farm, all to fuel the armies and feed the armies of Mordor, right? And that is... And every single... so, And then you've got, like, the smiths, the the like the workers like they might grow like flaxseed or something like that and spin it into like linen or they might like raise sheep to shear for wool and they'll turn it into clothes to to pad the armor and then they'll mine the iron ore out of the hills to then turn it over to the blacksmiths to then make armor and weapons like every single thing in just like Germany in World War Two and I'm please forgive me. Anyone who's just saying, well, Tolkien eschewed contemporary politics, I understand that. And I know that Mordor is not a direct analogue to World War II Germany. Um, it's just not, right? It's just war, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, exactly. I'm just using it as an example of a whole country 
turned into a military industrial economy. And that's exactly what it does. Everything in Mordor, everything in their economy is geared towards arming and improving the military. So that that's essentially their whole kind of economy. And then Isengard during the War of the Ring, essentially it's exactly the same thing. He's doing it slightly differently in a different place, but it's all designed to to bring it all together to, to be military industrial. And that's the big thing about them is that the industry and the scale of what they're doing and the damage they're doing to like the environment while they're doing it, like ripping up the Fangorn Forest to fuel their military economy. But... Because it's all based on conquest. You've got to think as well, good will always be evil because evil has an end. Evil is like these these guys are using all the resources, the rape and the land, mm-hmm. and the land can only give so much. So they would still meet their end. Well, whether people survived it, they would still meet an end. But imagine like one little turn of events that made it into something good. That's like, new catastrophe. This, this yeah. system that they've got going is so efficient and effective. How good that could be. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? is like you've hit on two concepts Tolkien expounded upon without realising it. The first one being that he said, I don't believe in ultimate evil, but I do believe... Uh, I don't believe in objective evil, but I do believe in objective good. Uh, Tolkien has explicitly said that he thinks the world is ultimately and objectively good, uh, ultimately good because Eru... God created the world, yeah, which is good. Even if evil things happen in it, the world itself still remains good. So he says, I don't believe in objective evil, but I do believe in objective good. So that's your first point. The second one about like what can turn it to good or what can be that one thing. And then there's that quote about the small hands turn the wheel of fate. And when things happen in Tolkien, or when all seems lost, and something happens to allow you to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, that's you, you catastrophe. So, yeah, and we do see that. The Eagles, for example, good uh, you catastrophe. Gollum missing, misstepping and falling into the lava of Mount Doom, that's you catastrophe. So, yeah, it's you're right. Like the, These economies essentially, they, they do account, uh, they do amount to nothing in the end because Eru's will is, is still done. And the last one we're going to talk about today is the elves. Dun, dun, dun. Now, yeah. This is a massive portion. It's not. Wow. I thought it was going to be. Mm, me too. Not as big as I thought. So the elves, uh, so firstly, I watched a very good video by uh, a channel called In Deep Geek, who I, I, I do enjoy watching his, his videos. And he talked about the elvish economy. And there were some of his points I didn't agree with because he didn't mention things that are in the published materials that would that would add weight to, uh, and uh, complexity to your argument. If he's but, pumping out loads of videos, though. But I also realised that, like, one, I didn't check when the video was published, so the book I'm going to, like, the, what I'm referring to might not have even been published when this video came out. But he brings up some good points about elves in their economy in particular that we've got to pay attention to. They don't age, they don't get sick, and they don't tend to change their leaders very often, which means that their economy will function slightly differently because they only need to strive for what they want to. And it's very stable, right? Very, yeah. very, very stable. You're not going to want to quit your job because you've got a new manager. Exactly. So elves, we know, tend to be the artisans, right? So they they, they just tend... We know they have artisans. So elves don't just lay about forever just 
shagging or whatever. <laughs> like they they pursue their idea, like they pursue what they want to do, just like dwarves do. We also know that unlike dwarves, though, the elves don't really need to strive for food for two reasons here. And uh, this is my own. One is that Yavanna um, provided the earliest elves with corn, so it was very easy to grow. But then also, like elves in the Third Age tend to live in very wooded areas, so they can either hunt or just gather the food. That's not an issue. And that's where, like, having a fairly static population comes in handy because you're not always having to, like, fuck the land over because you're constantly expanding your population. So that works for them. And then we've got Thranduil in Mirkwood, which is a bit of an odd one, because uh, he buys all of his shit, like his wine, his apples, his butter, like, all of that's brought in. That might be because Mirkwood's been fucked up by Sauron during that time, but who knows. But Thranduil's an odd one because... He actually does engage in that trade network of the north of Middle-earth. And that might just be because he loves money and trade and stuff. I, I don't know. But Thranduil's the odd one out. But like Rivendell and Lothlorien don't really have these concerns of having to buy in goods and sell stuff. Um, and it's also mentioned that the Sindar elves, and this is in the first age, who weren't ruled by Thingol, practiced cattle and sheep farming as well as growing and harvesting crops. And it said that one of the things they did was grow flax, which they grew and practiced weaving with it. Very healthy. Yeah. And then there's another first age note. Good for the digestion. In that <laughs> one of Feanor's sons, Caranthia, became one of the wealthiest people of the first age because apparently all of the trade in the dwarves did in Beleriand, Caranthia acted as an intermediary. So, it became, so again, like with the elves... That's it. It's kind of like the elves, their economy is pursue what we kind of want to do, except Thranduil, who likes wine and, and maybe he just likes wine and butter and apples and that's it. That's that's the three things he buys in and everything else is just the elves just do whatever they want because they don't have to worry about too much. And then there's Aman, which again, there's no fucking clue. It's paradise, right? Over there. So probably we know that they do do crops, right? Mm-hmm. Aman does have crops because Manwe has a high feast every year when the crops are gathered in, which is their harvest festival. I've got a question. Go on. How much sustenance do elves need to live? Because that will determine uh, their production. Not much. Not much. Because they it's don't have a big deal. Is they it? don't have many kids. And remember, Lembas can fill the st- one bite can fill yeah. the stomach they're of ne- a. They're a not grown exerting man. a lot of energy. Yeah, exactly. Like dwarves. Yeah. So I think that their main effort towards food will go when they have feasts or something, when they just want to make when they celebrate, when they want to make an occasion of it. Yeah, yeah. it's not like Christmas. Yeah, it's Easter, like um, birthdays. It's work to live, not live to work. No, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They work to live. They don't live to work. So you, you're an elf. I work to live. I'm yeah. a dwarf. I'm never going to be on my deathbed thinking, "Oh, I wish I'd wrote more fucking code." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, no, I, I'll be talking. I'll be talking about like the, the days like today where we've took our daughter to the forest and we've had a lovely day together and we've had like a four, like a fucking three day weekend together. Yeah, and it's been men gruffalo hunting. Exactly, but yeah, that is the economies of Middle Earth. Uh, it's a bit of a mad one, bit of a snapshot. If I've missed something, please do tell me. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. If you particularly like something about this episode, let me know. But please do. Passes around your friends, like the naughty little people we are. Passes around like cigarettes in prison, like currency. <laughs> no, share, like, come find me on Instagram. 
come and engage, come and talk to me. I'm a very friendly person. Don't talk to Becca. She's an absolute bastard, though. Um, no one could find me. Yeah, true. Well, no, that's uh, that's it for today. Have you got anything else you want to add? No, I just really enjoyed the episode. And I will be curious to the response to it because I feel like it's been a tamer episode. Yeah, it has. It's it's uh, it's been a bastard. It's been a weird one to research. So I hope people have found it interesting. And likewise, if you didn't find it interesting, let me know. Um, I, you know. Yeah, just skip it. Yeah, well, no, let me know. Like, hey, Chris, I didn't really find this one interesting compared to your other episodes because I'll blah. I'm not saying I'll change anything, but it'll be nice for you to get it off your chest. Yeah. Cathartic. Aye, but right. So that is it from me, Chris. So I'm going to say goodbye till next time. And goodbye from Rebecca. I have a good one. Bye. Bye.